Worried about your carbon emissions? Don't stress. You can pump out as much as you want, as long as you buy some offsets to balance it out. Scared of the collapse of wildlife? No problem. We can figure out how much money our ecosystems are worth and let the market do the rest. British budget airline EasyJet says it's giving customers what they want. It claims to have become the first major carrier to achieve net zero emissions across its entire network by offsetting its own carbon footprint. But wildfires burning in the West are threatening land set aside for carbon offsets. Welcome to the logic of green capitalism. Fossil fuel giants claim to celebrate sustainability while pumping out toxic emissions. Governments are relying on carbon offsets to make their climate promises add up. And we're told that we can fight the climate crisis with the magic of economic markets. Environmental activists say an ongoing legal battle with H&M might highlight a big company's alleged greenwashing. Bosses from the banking giant HSBC, which tonight stands accused of duping investors over its green policies. BP will still be pumping oil and gas in 30 years' time, and these targets will not address the climate crisis alone. So, why have corporations got so interested in sustainability? Will carbon offsets save us? Or are they just a cute accounting trick? And if wind and solar energy are so cheap, why haven't we embraced them? Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. This week we're asking, can capitalism save the planet? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So this week, tackling that juicy, juicy question, I'm really delighted to be joined down the line by Adrian Buller, author of The Value of a Whale on the Illusions of Green Capitalism. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Aisha. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, I'm also thrilled to be joined by Brett Christophers, returning friend of the pod, author of The Price is Wrong, Why Capitalism Won't Save the Planet. Hi, Brett. Hi, yeah. Uh... Okay, so let's jump straight in. Both of your books talk about an economic view that has recently emerged, which you call green capitalism. So, Adrian, let's start with you. If you could kick us off by explaining what you mean by green capitalism. Yeah, I mean, I think it's now a term that so many people use that it's a bit of like a precocious definition. So I guess if I were to try and kind of simplify it to its core, for me, it's really trying to rely on markets and market mechanisms, market systems to kind of address the great complexity of the challenge we're facing with both climate and kind of ecological crisis. And ultimately what that means in practice is that you have to rely on really two kind of tools or I guess kind of forces in the market system, one of which is profit maximization. So you are relying on rational self-interest of actors in the market motivated to maximize their profits to deliver almost as a bonus the outcomes we want to see, like cutting carbon emissions or, or reducing pollution. And the other is the idea of the price signal as the great communicator of information between actors in the market. And and what I mean by that is, you know, making things like polluting or carbon emissions or cutting down trees more expensive and therefore just assuming that the market will do away with them and making the things we want to see cheaper so that, you know, companies are more interested in pursuing them and therefore, you know, can maximize their profits. So these are the kind of mechanisms, I think, that undergird green capitalism as an approach to, to policymaking. Okay, so a lot of people would say, you know, we've got to kick our addiction to fossil fuels as fast as possible if we want to avoid climate breakdown. So Adrian, isn't it 
quicker to harness the power of capitalism to do that rather than wait until we've created this whole new economic system. I think you only really have to look at how like wildly off track we are for meeting even the kind of higher targets of something like the Paris Agreement, so limiting to two degrees Celsius of warming to understand that capitalism is not necessarily any faster when it comes to meeting what we need to be doing. But I think as well, what's key is that while there have been some areas of progress under capitalism, certainly, you know, we have seen considerable investment in things like renewable energy. Ultimately, you know, there are features of capitalism that are kind of self-defeating when it comes to addressing climate and ecological crisis. And it's the system that I would argue is just sort of ill-equipped to handle the kind of scale, the pace and the complexity of the challenge we're up against. If what that means is sort of leaving this to a diffuse set of actors sort of negotiating with each other in a market without, you know, the right alignment of incentives and motivations on their part to actually kind of address the challenges that we have. Because at the end of the day, so much of what we need to do, and again, I think we'll probably unpack this further, you know, isn't going to be profitable necessarily. And so it's really a huge risk to rely on the profit motive to, to deliver a lot of what we need to see, whether that's clean energy, whether that's decarbonized transport, whether that's stopping cutting down the world's forests. A lot of that isn't clearly aligned in obvious ways with the profit motive. Mm, so Brett, if all that's true, then why are private sector companies suddenly so concerned with environmental problems? Is it consumer demand or is it something else? Well, I think I would come back with a question myself, which is, is how concerned are they? I mean, basically, why are private sector firms interested in anything, right? I mean, as Adrian said, the be-all and end-all is, is, is generating profits. Uh, companies live or die by their profits. So, so companies are doing things either because they think there are profits to be generated in these activities, or, and I think this is an important point, or they think that profits will be available down the line and that you know, it's worth getting in first, being you know, a market mover, in the anticipation of kind of generating a market presence and becoming a dominant player in a market, for example, in the hope that when profits become available, they'll be there to kind of reap those profits down the line. So there's an expectation of profitability even now or later that, that is important. And so to the extent that green capitalism exists, to, to the extent that capitalist firms are doing things that are have sustainability as an objective or indeed an outcome, then that's obviously the main reason why. But I think, let's be fair, you know, the last thing we should be doing is stereotyping capitalists as unidimensional actors. They're full of people with different incentives and, and, and concerns and so on. And so I think there's, there's a very real likelihood that lots of companies, perhaps not the majority, but certainly a significant number, are doing things because they think it's the right thing to be doing. You know, not everything is about the profit motive. There's there's all sorts of different uh, incentives at play here. So I think that's definitely a part of it as well. And then I guess the last thing I would say, increasingly there is probably a marketing element to this, which is about having to be seen to be doing something, however minimal or peripheral that might be. I think that's increasingly important within the contemporary economy. The only thing I'd add to that is that you know, I think that marketing element or this, you know, demand 
to be perceived as going green, which I think comes both externally from customers, but also, as Brett was saying, you know, from inside a lot of these companies. You know, I used to work in a watchdog for the financial sector and spend a lot of time with people at kind of asset managers who are young people working in their sustainability teams, you know, genuinely wanting to make a difference. So I think there has been a lot of pressure on both sides. And that's one of... <laughs> The few things that I kind of celebrate about the like turn to green finance or sort of this boom in, in green capitalism as a trend. But at the same time, it's something that is, I think, really risky as well for us to rely on. And the last couple of months has really shown that where you've had, particularly in the US, but kind of across a lot of the world, a sort of backlash to this progression towards corporations or financial institutions trying to be more green and sustainable, this kind of woke capital backlash, as they call it, which is kind of the right or those who are sort of hostile to climate action, also leveraging sort of their power, whether it's as consumers or inside these institutions or as policymakers to kind of push back against it. So ultimately, it's a risky, I guess, factor to rely on uh, the self-interest of companies to necessarily always be sort of swinging in that green direction. Um, okay, let's let's drill down a little bit more, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, into some examples of how green capitalism actually operates. Um, so Adrian, you begin your book by describing an IMF study which calculated how much a whale was economically worth, uh, which sounds totally bizarre, perhaps, to, um, to our seasoned listeners. So could you tell us a bit more about this study and why you decided to use it? It is one of those ones that sounds quite silly, although it was a very serious study. I think the researchers produced it in earnest um, and with you know the best of intentions. The goal of the study was that currently we kind of underproduce whales or we kind of don't protect them sufficiently because their value or their contribution to the global economy isn't captured by, by markets. And so to fix that, we need to find out what each whale is worth so that we can sort of invest in protecting whales and that value can be reflected in sort of economic calculations. And the figure they arrived at was about 2 million US dollars per whale. But I think the reason that I start from that study is that it captures so much of, I guess, what we've been talking about already, which is this need to wedge everything that we need to do through the prism of, of the market, right? So, you know, we need to halt biodiversity loss and, you know, ocean acidification and the loss of ocean ecosystems and climate change. How can we do that? Well, God, the only way to do so is make sure that we like put a price tag on whales or different elements of the ocean ecosystem. So I think that really captures the mindset. And it's a slightly absurd example, but it's something that applies in, in lots of other domains, whether it's, you know, carbon emissions. So carbon pricing has been the kind of mainstream fixation of a lot of economic and climate policy, or at least academia for a long time. And increasingly, that applies to, to nature as well. So recently, although they haven't done it yet, the Biden administration brought in proposals to incorporate natural capital, which is basically valuing nature um, onto the balance sheet of the U.S. government. So putting in the national accounts alongside GDP to kind of get to grips with how much the U.S. is you know, degrading nature through its economic growth. And I think that's an important thing to kind of understand is that nature does contribute to any of the economic growth that we see. So in some ways, it's an interesting initiative, but I think there are real dangers to trying to capture the value of our biosphere through the kind of specific ways that it contributes to economic growth. And how does that relate to carbon offset projects? Carbon offsetting in 
and of itself is just, it describes a mechanism for canceling out the emissions that you might put into the atmosphere by contributing to a project that sort of draws down carbon or hypothetically does so, whether that's, you know, we think of it as planting trees, but actually that's a tiny minority of what most carbon offsetting projects actually are. A lot of them are paying to like protect a forest that may or may not have already been protected. Um, a lot of it is, you know, paying renewable generators that are already operating. Tesla, Brett has talked about this before, Tesla sells carbon credits or carbon offsets for their activities. So carbon offsets, I think, have become a massive market, partly as a way to kind of lubricate the demands of carbon pricing. But really, the the proliferation of carbon offsets is less often directly related to those markets and more has become a massive voluntary market around the global economy for corporations to say that they're taking action on climate change. I'm sure many of us have been asked to offset our flights, for example, by instead sort of paying to support one of these projects. Um, And there's all sorts of problems with them that I think that I could get into. Mm. Well, I mean, I was going to ask you, are they a scam? But I feel like you kind of covered that in that answer, which is kind of, (laughs) yeah, which is not surprising. Um, But we should move on. So we know that we need to shift the way we generate energy away from fossil fuels and towards things like wind and solar. Some environmentalists like to argue that since renewable energy is, is actually cheaper to generate than fossil fuels, that the market will kind of soon shift in that direction anyway towards these clean forms of energy. So, Brett, if the costs of clean, green energy are tumbling and things are moving in that direction anyway, then why aren't we generating more of it? We are generating more of it. So this is the thing, right? I mean, I think the best way to capture kind of the progress that is or isn't being made on renewables and the decarbonization of the power sector, the the energy generation sector, is that it's growing fast. Renewables are growing fast, but they're not growing fast enough to essentially substitute for fossil fuel power. So, So... Overall power consumption is going up so fast that essentially the growth in renewables is complementing power produced through coal and natural gas rather than substituting for it, which is just another way of saying it needs to grow faster. If you read the the press the last few weeks, in in fact, at any time in the last few years, there'll be lots of articles that you'll find that say, you know, renewables are surging ahead and they are, but they're still not growing fast enough. And the thing is, is that you know, because the strategy that the world has essentially adopted vis-a-vis climate change mitigation puts such an onus on the electricity sector. So, for example, if you take things like road transportation, like how do you decarbonize road transportation? Well, you can do it in two ways, essentially. Either you can continue to use a fuel, but instead of of using a fossil fuel, petroleum, you can use like um, ethanol, or some kind of biofuel, or you can electrify road transportation. So use batteries and then generate uh, to store the electricity and then generate the electricity renewably. And here's the thing, right, which is that basically the world is betting the house on electrification. It's basically saying that the way that we're going to decarbonize the world is to electrify as much as possible. So transportation, buildings, industrial processes, and then generate that electricity renewably. But what that means is that global electricity demand is growing very, very fast and will continue to grow very, very fast. And so that puts an extra burden on the requirement for decarbonizing electricity, simply because there's going to be so much more electricity going forward. 
So it's growing fast, but it's not growing fast enough. So that's the, the first part of my answer, I suppose. The second part is this question of price. And you're completely right, which is that the dominant economic narrative around renewables and uh, renewables substituting for fossil fuels has always focused on price. It's always been, the argument has always been historically renewables, so generating power through solar or wind was more expensive than generating power through burning gas or coal. So the economic challenge was to bring down that cost and, until it was as cheap or cheaper than fossil fuels. And you could do that through you know, providing a range of subsidies and support mechanisms and so on, which is what governments did. And the argument then was that once you had reached cost parity, that the economic challenge would have been solved. Renewables would then kind of surge ahead and there would be no more investment in, in fossil fuel fired power because renewables were cheaper. And there was an important side aspect of that argument, which was always that once you've reached that stage, if renewables aren't growing as fast as they as we, we would like them to. It's because of non-economic obstacles. It's because of things like political obstructionism. It's because of things like slow planning processes. You know, we're not giving connections to the grid fast enough. There's a bureaucratic thicket in terms of local authorities giving planning permission and so on. But the obstacles are no longer economic because we've solved the economics. And, and essentially, my argument is that there is still an economic challenge, which is that even though it's become as cheap or cheaper to generate power renewably, it's still not a very profitable activity. And because capitalists obey the profit imperative above all else, that's why renewables development is not going fast enough, because it's just not economically attractive enough a business. And that the kind of unilateral focus on price that the whole economic debate has had sort of obscures the key dynamic, which is the profitability dynamic. Hmm. Okay, so this kind of feels like potentially another example of us kind of relying on the market and future technological innovations to kind of save us from climate disaster. But then this is a clear example of why that is not working. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Yes, absolutely. So that's a good follow up question, because there's a reason why the profitability constraint that I'm talking about here matters so much, which goes back to where we started the discussion, which is that you know, pretty much every government around the world, when it comes to their strategy for uh, decarbonizing the power sector, has essentially kind of thrown up their hands and said, okay, we're going to leave it up to the private sector and markets to do this. We are not going to do it ourselves. We will provide various types of incentives to kind of nudge things along. But essentially, we're going to rely on the private sector to do this. And the point is that relying on the private sector to do something is very, very dangerous and very, very problematic if the private sector doesn't see sufficiently attractive incentives to do that. And that's uh, where we are right now, which is that you know, the profits to be generated from developing and operating solar and wind farms, compared to things like, to take a non-random example, extracting and selling oil and gas from the Earth's crust, it's just not a very attractive business. You're looking at returns of maybe five, six, seven percent, whereas you know oil and gas companies don't get out of bed in the morning unless they know they're going to be generating returns of fifteen percent plus. So it's just in relative terms, if not absolute terms, it's just not a very attractive business. Mm, okay, so let's go a little bit deeper on the role of the state. We've talked a lot about how private companies are kind of operating under green capitalism, or at least yeah, but under the a facade of 
of it at the moment. But Brett, could you say a bit more about how the state kind of outsources the fight against the climate crisis to private firms? Because I know that's something that you've talked about before. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly what they're doing. And they do that in all sorts of different ways. So expecting private firms to take the lead in developing renewables is just one part of that. You know, another example would be encouraging oil and gas companies to get out of oil and gas. You know, how are, how are governments doing that? Well, more than anything else, they're expecting the financial markets to do that. They're expecting investors, whether that's debt or equity investors, to essentially raise the cost of capital to oil and gas companies because continued investment in those is perceived to be too great a risk. And therefore, by raising the cost of capital, they're essentially, force is the wrong word, but guide oil and gas companies out of that business through that capital cost. So they're essentially leaving that up to the private sector, in that case, uh, financial markets to do it. So, But when it comes specifically to the renewables question, they expect the private sector to, to take the lead. And what they've historically done is provided a range of different support mechanisms to um, incentivize the private sector to do that. So remember what I was saying earlier that in the past, renewables were much more expensive than fossil fuel-fired power. So governments knew they had to provide incentives because of that cost disadvantage. And they can and have done that in a variety of different ways. They can say, okay, if it's going to cost you $100 million, to take a US example, to build a new wind farm, we will essentially pay 30% of that investment cost through giving you tax credits. So by giving you a credit against your tax bill, we will subsidize 30% of the investment cost. That's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is to say, uh, we will give you a contract uh, over, say, a 12 or 15 year period to sell the electricity that you produce through your wind farm. And we will give you a fixed price for that electricity, a guaranteed fixed price for the next 12 or 15 years as a way to incentivize you to carry out that development. So one of the big issues in electricity markets is that electricity prices are very, very volatile over both short, medium and long time frames. And that's a huge problem to getting renewables projects off the ground because those projects tend to be financed by banks. Banks provide loans to the developers of those projects. And when those, when the developers of, of those projects go to the banks and say, look, will you give me 100 million pounds to develop this wind farm? The bank will say, well, how are you going to pay back that loan? And the developer says, by selling the electricity it produces for 15 years. And the bank will say, well, what price are you going to sell the electricity at? And the developer says, I don't know. And the bank says, well, I'm not going to lend you the money. So the government steps in and says, we'll give you a fixed price so that you can then take that fixed price to the bank and the bank will have the confidence to give you the loan for that project because it can see the price at which you're going to be get selling that electricity for the next 15 years. So that's another way the state does it. There's a whole range of different ways that governments step in. But here, here's the thing. Governments thought they would only have to do that for a limited time. They thought that once the technologies had matured, and once the costs had come down to parity with coal and gas uh, conventional power plants, they could then remove those support mechanisms because the economic obstacle, as I put it earlier, had been removed. They've now discovered that's not the case. And so everywhere around the world where they've tried to re remove or even just substantially reduce those support mechanisms, they found that investment completely collapses precisely because of those profitability constraints. And so what governments have done is they've had to then 
reintroduce or rebuild those support mechanisms because the private sector can't do without them. I think it's such an interesting point, and you can see it really clearly in like renewable energy, even in the UK recently, which is that in the mechanism that we have, which kind of aligns with the second sort of system that Brett had described there, which is you know the government sort of guaranteeing that they'll receive a fixed price for electricity. The last uh, or two auctions ago, I think, failed to secure any bids from the private sector because the price that the government was offering them wasn't deemed high enough for them to be profitable. And that, I think, came as a huge shock for precisely the reasons Brett just articulated, which is that you know now that this technology is ostensibly cheap, they should be able to turn a profit and therefore we should be able to slowly wind these back. And I think it really captures... What is so, I think, artificial about the idea of sort of markets in so much climate policy as it currently exists, which is that we have this sort of ideological cleavage almost to the idea that markets need to be at the heart of what we're doing and the markets that we do have are working and just look at, you know, renewable energy. When in fact, so much of what's happening isn't really a market at all in the first place. There's so much shaping, prodding, incentive, subsidy, et cetera, already in place just to kind of make these quasi markets function that I think that in and of itself raises a real question about, you know, why we are so committed to the idea. And by we, I mean, you know, policymakers (laughs) to the idea that markets have to be at the center of what we're doing when it's already so much hassle to make them kind of function in the first place. Hmm. Okay. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. We're going to circle back and talk about what we could be doing instead, but I think I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about asset managers um, because of course they, they play a big role here and they've come up a couple of times and we've, we've not pounced on them yet. So a big theme in both of your books is the role asset managers are playing in fueling the crisis that we're talking about. And last series, we did a specific episode looking at the dominance of asset managers. But for listeners who didn't tune into that episode, let's start with you, Adrian. So could you give our listeners a quick refresh on what asset managers are and what they have to do with the climate crisis? Yeah, so asset managers, I mean, again, sort of a broad term that can mean, I think, a lot of things. But at its essence, an asset manager is just a financial institution that does what it says on the tin. It manages assets on behalf of other people. So if you are you know, a pension fund or in theory, an individual, but broadly it's sort of pension funds, foundations, university endowments, kind of big, what we call institutions, asset owners with big pots of money will hand over that cash to be managed by a financial intermediary who will then invest it on their behalf under the premise that this specialized asset management firm will do a better job at optimizing your returns because they specialize in this field. And that can look like a lot of things. A lot of what happens in asset management is investment in things like shares and corporate bonds, just because that's a big part of their business is sort of conventional financial markets. But increasingly, and I'll leave Brett to talk about this side of things, they're also kind of investing in what's called alternatives, which is a lot of infrastructure projects. It can be things like our railways, our energy systems, our water systems, famously in the UK, but also housing on an increasingly massive scale with some of these top players. So there's a whole range of kind of areas that these firms might be invested in sort of throughout the entire economy, throughout the world, um, every kind of asset class, every industry, every region. You can probably find an asset manager owning a major project or a small set of asset management firms being really dominant in global stock markets. And that, I think, has kind of significantly reshaped 
not only the financial system, but also I think political power within the private sector in a really significant way. So I think asset managers have several, I guess, roles in or kind of dogs in this fight. One of which is, you know, we touched on it at the beginning, the idea of you know, how successful green capitalism, such as it as it is, has been to date, which is this real excitement, I think, around the idea that, you know, all these private financial institutions are now invested, many of whom, you know, for legitimate reasons in being sustainable. They're concerned with the risks to their financial returns uh, from the climate crisis, from, you know, climate legislation, all of these things. And so they have actual kind of interest in sustainability in some kind of form. And so they've really been at the heart of that outsourcing that Brett was speaking about of the decision-making around where capital goes in the global economy to the private sector. And I think that's been quite risky. They've kind of been given carte blanche to sort of make their own rules in many cases. It's been really hard to agree rules for what counts as sort of green investment. There's very little regulation of their ability to continue plowing money into fossil fuels and other dirty investments. Um, So you tend to get both all at once in most firms. Um, So that's one big part of it is just their kind of role in this narrative of look at how great the private sector is already doing this. They're going to whip these corporations that they own into shape and they're going to reallocate capital to the green, a lot of which isn't really happening on anything like the scale that is often suggested. The other is, you know, their role directly in investing in a lot of these infrastructure projects, which again, I'll leave to Brett. But the third, and I think this is really interesting, particularly in the US, although you can really see impacts of it in the European Union as well, and and to a lesser degree, sort of in the UK and Canada and other places, is the fact that some of these firms have become so massive. There are a couple, a small handful of firms that manage, you know, several trillion dollars in assets for institutions and individuals all around the world. And the concentration in the industry has made these kind of mega firms very, very influential. Their interests are really listened to by policymakers, and they're not unaware of that. Um, And some of them engage politically more than others. So BlackRock, which is the world's biggest asset management firm, and they've been the king for a long time of Wall Street. They have been very proactive in trying to influence both public discourse and public perception. You know, the CEO's newsletters have become something of a phenomenon in the business press. You know, like, oh, what is Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, saying today on climate change? change. And he can massively sway public opinion, the opinion of policymakers, what the industry does, etc. But also very directly, you know, they've had many BlackRock alumni that have ended up in significant positions in the Biden administration, you know, not trying to get too conspiratorial with it. But all that to say that, you know, a lot of these alumni from these firms end up in quite prestigious positions. There's this clear relationship between the power of this industry, its prestige, its perceived expertise in a lot of these areas, and the fact that they're directly engaged in influencing policy. And I mean, in the European Union, for example, BlackRock was brought in to directly advise on designing this sustainable finance legislation. And that was laid found to be conflict of interest by the ombudsman, even if in certain instances, I think they're genuinely interested in not having climate catastrophe. Like that's not good for returns, obviously, but it's the way that that aligns with their other interests that I think is really important. And so the impact on policy that you see, I think, of BlackRock or, you know, asset manager perspective is how can we make the transition to a decarbonized economy as investable and opportunity? 
opportunity for us as possible. So you really see their impact on things like the Inflation Reduction Act in the US and all the kind of politicking and design around that, which was effectively, you know, how can we leverage the power of the US government to create new investable opportunities for the private sector and for asset managers in particular. Um, And so I think that's quite a significant influence on the way that a lot of policymaking is done right now around climate change in particular. Do you want to come in, Brett? Yeah, so Adrian's given a fantastic answer, and I think she's covered pretty much everything in a very clear way. The only thing I would add is to say that as much as anything else, the climate crisis is, and is certainly seen to be, an, an infrastructure crisis, by which I mean that there's a huge amount of capital investment that is clearly required around the world, both in, in infrastructures of mitigation and adaptation. So there's a huge infrastructure investment requirement. And as I'm sure many listeners will know, there's a very popular concept of the infrastructure gap, which is often invoked to kind of visualize that, which is the idea that on the one hand, you have the amount of investment in infrastructure, not only climate infrastructure, but particularly climate infrastructure that is happening or planned right now. And on the other hand, there's the amount of infrastructure investment that's required uh, or, or kind of predicted to be required. And the gap kind of denotes the huge gulf between those two things. So there's this recognition about a huge amount of infrastructure requirement being necessary. On the other hand, however, we have we have a situation where governments around the world have essentially been persuaded or have persuaded themselves that that is not government's own responsibility. This goes back to this issue about, as you put it earlier, in terms of outsourcing. So governments have kind of said, look, you know, we have to be fiscally responsible. We, you know, we need to tighten the public spending belt and so on and so forth. Now, in some countries around the world, that's obviously completely understandable, right? There's lots of governments operating under incredibly severe fiscal constraints. The UK is absolutely is not one of those, but there are places where those fiscal constraints are very, very real. But however real they are, that's basically government's position. Now, if you are a government that has decided, A, we need a huge amount of infrastructure investment, and B, we're not going to do it ourselves, then by default, the private sector is the answer. And if the private sector is the answer, you come pretty quickly to asset managers for the simple reason that the vast bulk today of surplus capital around the world is managed by asset managers. Like that's who has the money. And so if you're looking to the private sector, then almost by necessity, you are looking specifically to asset managers because they're the ones that have the dry powder, as they like to put it, at their disposal. That's where the money is. If that's your position as a policymaker, then that introduces all sorts of political obstacles about your willingness to regulate asset managers, your willingness to impose kind of disciplines on asset managers. Because what you see, and we've seen this, you know, the UK water sector would be a classic example of this. As soon as policymakers or regulators start kind of even just talking about more stringent regulation, more stringent expectations and conditions being imposed on those types of investors, the immediate response from the asset management industry is, well, we'll stop investing. We'll just take our money elsewhere. And as soon as that happens, Policymakers effectively wet the bed. Okay, we won't do anything after all because we don't want to scare off capital. So asset managers are at the center of this environmental crisis for lots of different reasons. But the biggest one right now is because there's a recognition of the requirement for capital investment 
And because of the political ideology that dominates today, private capital is the answer and therefore asset managers are the answer. Okay, so we've gone through quite a few examples, and I think that's a a very clear one of green capitalism presenting solutions that are actually, in fact, hampering the efforts that we need to see to slash carbon emissions and solve the climate crisis. So if markets aren't going to save us, which I think is a a message from this podcast, um, and we can't wait for the private sector to solve our problems, what do we do instead? What are some ways forward that don't rely on green capitalism? My position is not that there's no role for the private sector. There has to be a role for the private sector, simply because we live in a capitalist society. And so there has to be and there will continue to be a role for the private sector. And I think the private sector is pretty good at doing some things if they see that profits are there. Let me talk about electricity, because that's what the, the, the book that I've written is about. And that's the example I know best. But I mean, it seems to me that if the status quo which, as I've said, is leaving it up to the private sector and markets and the government providing incentives of various kinds. If that status quo isn't working, what are the options? Well, I think there are, broadly speaking, three possibilities, and it doesn't have to be kind of one or the other. Maybe maybe it's possible to have a combination of them. So one of them is the government to essentially say, okay, we're going to stick with the model we have, which is private sector and markets, and we're just going to give them as much subsidy as they need to do it as fast as we need them to do it. This is basically we're just going to throw as much money at them and provide as much incentives for them so that profitability in renewables is not 5%, but it's 15%. And everyone just kind of comes in and will just provide as much subsidy as is required. That's kind of what the Inflation Reduction Act is. In a way, it's like saying, okay, we were tapering down these incentives over time, because we thought that as costs came down, we would be able to do that. Now we've realized we can't do it. We're just going to take the level of tax credit back to where we started, back to 30%. And the likes of BlackRock say, fantastic, we love that. Thank you very much. So that's one option, just provide as much incentive as necessary and stick with the existing model. The second one, and this is kind of where mainstream economists, I think, broadly come in when it comes to electricity, is they say, look, we need to stick with private sector and markets. Of course we do. The problem is, is that markets as they're currently designed are not fit for purpose. And so mainstream economists have been arguing this for many years, actually. They'll say, look, electricity markets, as we currently have them around the world, were designed in and for a fossil fuel world. We, we haven't really reformed market mechanisms in the, in the power sector for 20 or 30 years. But we now live in a different world. We have different technologies with different engineering constraints and so on and so forth. We need to change the markets that we have. So it's reduced to a question of market design, for want of a better word. And they argue if we get the market right, all of the problems will go away. And this comes back to where Adrian's book is so good, which is basically saying, well, we've been hearing that argument in different contexts for 20 years now. And it's been proven wrong and mistaken again and again and again. So my suspicion is it would be proven wrong in electricity. But that's the second answer, is not get rid of markets, but make markets work better. Classic neoliberal uh, position. The third one is to say we need the state to take a much bigger role. Now, I think that takes you in two possible directions. So one, and I think we don't hear this enough, actually, the state says, we're actually just going to tell capital what to do. We're going to tell private sector firms what to do. And you might think, well, we can't do that. But we do it in wartime. History is full of examples of governments introducing what are called compulsory production orders, where they basically tell private firms what to do. And, you know, this is your contribution to the war effort. You're going to do this, whether it's profitable or not. 
and get to it. Well, given that politicians serially like to compare climate change to a, to a situation of war, why don't they do a similar thing now? If you want to invoke that example, if you want to talk about war, then do what you do during war, which is tell firms what to do. But is that likely in the current conjuncture? I don't think so. The other thing is, that, is the state can do it itself, so through, through public ownership on one scale or another. And of course, in the UK, that's what Labour has hinted at with its idea of a great British energy renewables generating company. But it's kind of hinting at doing it on a very, very minor scale. Uh, and, it's, and as far as I can tell, it's hinting at a public renewables company that essentially would be publicly owned, but behave just like a private sector actor in, in, to all intents and purposes. Whereas I think that it's pretty clear by now that the scale of the challenge would require something much greater. But substantial scale public investment, financing, ownership and operation of renewables facilities would be the other answer. You know, I'm broadly in agreement with those as probably a set of options, although, you know, with another being that there's a much more like chaotic future at hand in which a more radical resolution becomes necessary. And part of me feels that that is in some ways the most likely situation only because I think many of the market scenarios, capitalist scenarios that Brett outlined there are certainly the most likely in the near term. But, you know, for all the reasons we talked about today are at best a very weakly effective version through which you can tackle escalating carbon emissions or ecological degradation. And so in many ways, you're just kind of kicking the can down the road a little bit to some unknown (laughs) future. So the way I always see it is like, I I often use a kind of like rock hard place metaphor. But then as I thought about trying to answer this, I realized it was sort of like rock seven other boulders that you're wedging. You kind of got to squeeze your way out. The rock being, you know, the profound political constraint of the fact that we live under actually existing capitalism. There's no revolutionary project to overthrow that, let alone a clear idea of what exactly comes after on offer at the minute. And so that's a really real constraint. And so then you have to ask, what does that mean for do we accept some kind of form of of green capitalist solution, etc. And I think in the near term, what's really important is not necessarily opposing any kind of role for the private sector in this transition, as Brett articulated, I think, you know, I will accept any degree of like bending that emissions curve and, of you know, halting some of the ecological devastation that we're seeing. And so if we can find ways to ensure that those systems or policies are done in ways that are kind of as democratically accountable as they can be, that sort of bend to considerations of sort of justice and sort of inequality in their design. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act initially had quite a few radical policies as part of its program. They kind of get weaseled out. But I think demanding those kinds of concessions is a really important kind of strategic point. But I think ultimately, if I sort of step back and look at some of the other boulders on the shoulder to return to that metaphor, ultimately, so much of the way that capitalism functions for us in the UK or, or, you know, the US or wherever your listeners are, has relied on a tremendous amount of offloading the sort of ecological harms and the scale of extraction, extractive industry, environmental degradation, et cetera, required to sustain our economic models, our energy systems, et cetera. And we're sort of rapidly approaching a point at which, you know, we're sort of running out of these kind of invisible elsewheres to offload these things on. And that, I think, is 
something that will sort of begin to rear its head is already. There are ecosystems or communities around the world being pushed to breaking point to sustain an ongoing green capitalism for us. And that, I think, much like the political constraints of the fact that we currently live under capitalism and overthrowing it seems unlikely, is just a real, as real a constraint. It's just one that I think we aren't paying enough attention to yet and probably won't until we can no longer ignore it. Tends to be the way it works, doesn't it? That is all we have time for today. But we have had such a comprehensive walkthrough of the many faces, boulders, shoulders, pitfalls and uh, (laughs) dangers of green capitalism. So thank you both so much for being with me and giving me your time. I'm imagining that listeners want to hear uh, more from, from both of you. So if they want to do that, find out more about your work, read your books, where can they go? What should they read? Let's start with you, Brett. I would say the easiest and most readily accessible place to read about some of my ideas and stuff is in various kind of opinion pieces I've written for the the Guardian over the last few years that have been, that give kind of snapshot views on um, the various pieces of work that I've been doing. So that's a good place to go. And can you remind us of your, the title of your book, Brett? Yeah, it's called The Price is Wrong. Um, and then the subtitle is Why Capitalism Won't Save the Planet. Lovely. Thank you so much. And Adrian, same question. Yeah, you've got bad luck here because neither Brett nor I are on Twitter these days. So there's no <laughs> um, sorry, X. Um, yeah, so definitely um, the book, which is called The Value of a Whale on the Illusion Screen Capitalism. But also, and I'm going to soft launch this now, I'm working on a new project in partnership with Commonwealth, where I used to work. Um, and we'll be sort of launching a new platform dedicated to all things kind of capitalism and, and ecological crisis um, in April. So watch that space. Follow Commonwealth and I'll pop up at some point in the spring. So. Lovely. Thank you both so much. That is it for today's new economics podcast, but we'll be back soon with more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. To find out about becoming a NEF supporter, you can visit neweconomics.org. The New Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Katrina Gaffney, James Rush and Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.